Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. I am joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nathan Strauss. Hello, hello. And we hope you've had a happy Thanksgiving if you are an American listener. And we hope that you had a, a pretty solid week if you you know are listening from across the pond or wherever you might be listening from. And we are going to get into our regular weekend review Shortly, we're going to talk about all things from the Premier League, Jurgen Klopp versus broadcasters, another defeat for Arsenal, and a pretty average you know, nil-nil draw between Chelsea and Spurs, as well as some Bundesliga talk, some La Liga talk as well. But before we do that, this is the first time that the three of us have all been together since the world found out about the passing of an icon of the game, in Diego Armando Maradona, probably one of the greatest figures to ever lace up a pair of boots. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on his passing. Obviously, the three of us are younger fans, but I think the barometer of success in soccer is frequently Maradona, and it has been hard to escape his very his very big shadow in the game and just everything that he accomplished and what he represents to so many fans. Right. I mean, as you said, we're much younger we never got to see him in his playing days so the way I think we know him most is just through the fact that he is held as this great figure and of course we've seen some of his highlight goals through the years but I think it's he he is one of the cornerstones I would say of modern soccer and I think anytime a figure that great passes it has a huge huge impact um and, and I think also forces a bit of like a reflection about like the meaning of the sport and I think one of the images that stuck out most to me this weekend was after Messi scored today him taking off his Barcelona jersey to reveal a Newell's you know match-worn original kit with Maradona's 10 on it just to show that there's a you know a direct through line from his greatness in the 70s and 80s um, and early 90s to Messi himself and so I think it's it's a sobering moment, um, and I think he's someone who should be recognized as a true great. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that Messi actually performed a halftime uh, juggling performance in one of Maradona's games, which is just a crazy coincidence and shows how small the soccer world can be. I think one of the other things that really stood out to me is how much of an influence Maradona had, not just on soccer, but really on the whole sporting world. There's a great um, very emotional Haka performance that the New Zealand All Blacks did before facing Argentina, where they laid down a a Maradona kit um, or an, an All Blacks kit with Maradona's number ten on it. Um, and the the All Blacks kit is like basically hallowed ground um, for New Zealanders. So it just shows how uh, highly esteemed he was and how influential he was on the sporting world as a whole. And I think. It's evidence that Mess, like Messi, who is by by my account the greatest soccer player of our generation, if not all time, has constantly been compared to Maradona over the course of his career. Not just because of their stature or because of their journeys, but because Maradona is Argentinian soccer, um, and both it, both literally in terms of his 
stints as player and manager, but also figuratively as sort of an, a, a metaphor for how Argentina made its impact on the world game. So he might have been a divisive character on and off the pitch, but his talent uh, certainly cannot be questioned. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, Nathan. And I was reading a piece this weekend from the, oh, I forget his name, the BBC South American soccer writer. Tim Vickery. Yes, Tim Vickery. I was reading a piece this weekend from Tim Vickery, and he was talking about how he remembers speaking with and interviewing an old Argentina captain from back when Maradona was playing for the national team. And or that captain said something to the effect of like, back in ancient times in Rome, Julius Caesar and like Roman emperors would have someone constantly following them around to remind them that they are in fact like mortal human beings. And he was saying that how he, he looking back on it, he wished that they had done something similar uh, with Maradona because I think like Nathan was beginning to point out this guy had an incredibly complex relationship with his superstardom. A, a lot of that has been discussed this weekend, you know, the hand of God, some of his addiction issues and issues with substance abuse. But I think sort of what you both are alluding to is the fact that just his mythical nature, both on the field and the passion that he had for the game off of it, I think is going to be the thing that outlives any other discussion that we have about Maradona. And, and I shared this with the two of you. Uh, Maradona meant a lot in my family because when my dad moved from Malaysia to the U.S., uh, he's a massive soccer fan and he played soccer at a very high level in Malaysia. But when he moved to the U.S., he didn't have many friends. You know, he didn't settle in right away. But something that happened right after he moved to the U.S. was the World Cup in 1994, which took place, you know, all over the United States of America. But he was lucky enough to somehow get a ticket and go by himself to Argentina versus Greece. And he was telling me this week that one of his greatest memories of first moving to the U.S. was watching Maradona at the age of 33 stride onto the field and look like he hadn't missed a step. And it was one of the great joys of his life to be able to watch Maradona on American soil. You know, regardless of people's personal faults, I think the important thing is that they bring someone like Maradona, a mythical icons like him and Muhammad Ali and a number of tremendous sportsmen bring so much joy to people's lives. And I think that's that's what's really important. I feel like most of his, you know, cheating aside, I feel like the his struggles with with drugs and alcoholism and womanizing generally reflected inwards rather than if you're an Englishman who grew up and, you know, your first memory of, of soccer is him cheating to win a match maybe maybe your perception of him is a little skewed but, well, yeah and he faced like team, tremendous yeah. adversity in his life you know you think about like where he came from in Argentina he really came from an impoverished neighborhood and when he went to Naples he became a superstar but then had like issues with fitness and then eventually he scored against Italy and, <laughs> and knocked them out of the world cup and he was essentially ran out of that country following a paternity scandal as well. You know, the way that the Italian media frequently likes to turn on their own superstars. So he's had like a tremendous amount of adversity in his life and the fact that he was able to kind of work through everything and still do what he did on the pitch, score some of the greatest goals of all time. And probably as as Caleb said, laid the bedrock for modern soccer as we know it to be now is quite incredible. Yeah. So definitely one of definitely one of the people who are on the Mount Rushmore of of global soccer history. 
Um, and it's been it's been nice to see how pretty much every soccer club from around the world has paid some sort of tribute. And indeed, right now, as we uh, are recording, Boca Juniors are in action for the first time uh, since his passing against Newell's. Caleb, anything else on Maradona? Yeah, I, I don't I don't have much more because I think this segment is just sort of a tribute. But I think another image that has stuck out to me from the various images of mourning throughout the world, from Naples to Barcelona to even Seville, um, is in Buenos Aires, the picture of uh, River Plate and uh, Boca Juniors fan hugging each other and, and crying. And just, I think, another image of how sort of Maradona transcended kind of petty division in sport and, and represented, I think, something greater and something more transcendent. I saw that too. That was... That was really moving, especially knowing how vitriolic that rivalry can get. But yeah, we at Corner Kick here, we're going to miss Diego Maradona, and I'm sure the rest of the world is as well. May he rest in peace. We're going to miss Diego Maradona along with all of you. Nathan, quite the busy weekend in soccer. A lot of controversial off-the-field discussion being held in the Premier League this weekend, but also, you know, some interesting results as well to parse through. A lot of noteworthy draws and a few notable wins and losses for teams in the top six. Yeah, I mean, I think just looking across Europe as a whole, if you're a fan of a big team, this weekend likely didn't go very well for you. Borussia Dortmund lost... uh, Real Madrid got smoked by Olives and the scoreline flattered them, the 2-1 loss. But looking inward in the Premier League, um, some really dire performances um, and some really poor off-field decisions that we saw this weekend. I think we should probably start with yesterday's matches. And the first match of the weekend, despite having played on Wednesday, Liverpool won, Brighton won by virtue of a very controversial uh, penalty in the 93rd minute. Nick, uh, I know you were pretty irate and disappointed um, following this game. Uh, and we know that Jurgen Klopp was pretty outspoken um, about why his team were forced to play um, so early on, despite having a midweek clash. First of all, what do you make of the the two major or the three major VAR calls this game, the two goals that Liverpool had out for offsides, as well as the penalty that was awarded late on? And then what do you make of, of Klopp's comments after the games uh, in his sort of fierce debate with uh, with Des Kelly? I'm glad that we're recording this on a Sunday because I've had a day to cool off after watching that game. I think first and foremost, we have to address the fact that it was a pretty lackluster performance from Liverpool. I think they didn't really attack the game very well. They're very much on the back foot at times. They allowed Aaron Connolly and Danny Welbeck, plenty of space up front. So I think there are definitely some issues to work out with Jurgen Klopp as he continues to try and piece things together with an incredibly weak team as it stands right now. And I can understand his frustration because James Milner went off with a now-confirmed hamstring injury, so it looks like he's set to miss a few weeks. The offsides are offsides. I think we've seen those go either way in the Premier League this season. I think you can make a case for Salah being onside. I certainly think Mane was offside for his goal 
the thing that irritates me is the fact that we go into games now knowing that you know VAR is going to mess up. I think the inconsistency from VAR is getting to a place where it's becoming really untenable. Depending on what your thoughts are on the penalty, I thought it was a bit of a soft penalty. Even Danny Welbeck and Brighton players after the game were coming out and saying that it was a soft penalty. And I just think in a world pre-VAR, that penalty isn't given. The referee doesn't spot doesn't spot that or interprets it differently and doesn't have, you know, a voice in his ear saying that, oh, maybe you should have a look at this slow motion image of Andy Robertson clipping, barely clipping Danny Welbeck's foot. I just think that once again, we're seeing that the subjectivity of VAR is completely getting in the way of what should be a system that is used for overturning clear and obvious decision making. And I think it's becoming an invasive part of the game that really detracts from any good product that the Premier League is trying to push right now. And I don't know at what opportunity they can shelve VAR, but like Jordan Henderson said, it's becoming increasingly difficult to tell what the rules are the what what the the actual rules of the game are going by the way that VAR is used in the Premier League right now. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think this was another game where VAR made probably a wrong decision and a decision that you know, impacted the result. You know, I think that's one thing, but I feel like at the same time, it's a bit of a distraction from the game that we actually saw, which seemed to me to represent just Liverpool having, you know, extreme tiredness after having played a late fixture on Saturday or on Wednesday and then having to play an early game on Saturday. Just the idea that, you know, this this team is already kind of gassed, already missing a lot of players. And we saw today, you know, Minamino playing out of position a little bit, Milner getting injured. And, you know, it all resulted in a, a performance that I think wasn't up to scratch, especially against a Brighton team that I think Liverpool should be winning probably 3-0 or 3-1 against, right? Like Liverpool only had six shots. They were outshot nearly 2-1 to one by Brighton. They were out-dribbled. And so, Nick, I'm, I'm just wondering whether you think, like, obviously VAR had a big sort of direct impact on the results of the game. But more broadly, I don't even think that's like the the central issue here. And I was just wondering if you could dig into and maybe you can transition mm. to the, the 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 argument between Klopp. Because the, the VAR thing, frankly, seems a distraction. I, I think I'm caught between two minds with this Jurgen Klopp versus Des Kelly of BT Sport interview. And we'll link to that interview down in the show notes if any of you haven't seen it already. It was, it's a really fascinating exchange between a manager and a journalist, the likes of which I don't think we've seen in quite a while. If you're Jurgen Klopp, The way that this is being portrayed now is that Klopp and the Liverpool management are being distracted from what they should actually be doing on the pitch by all of this like fixture congestion injury stuff. And I think they have the benefit of being at the top of the table. So they're able to, you know, complain about these things without it seeming particularly petty. Um, But I also think that this week Liverpool set out in both games Almost, I don't want to say not to win them, but it certainly wasn't a championship mentality from Liverpool. You know, I think in the Leicester game, they really displayed a championship mentality by saying, you know what, these are the players that we have. We're going to put our best 11 on the pitch and we are going to outplay Leicester. I don't think they did that against Atalanta. And I'm not Jurgen Klopp, so I don't, I, I don't quite know 
what the deal is with, you know, the fitness of all the players and what Jurgen Klopp and his fitness team likes to call the red zone, where they calculate the fatigue level and the injury level of players and if they are able to start them or not, or how many minutes they're able to get coming onto the field as a substitute, which is why you saw the Salah for Mane switch. You know, the Atalanta game, you know that they're a team that is going to be looking to avenge that 5-0 loss at home. And Atalanta are, were also resting players at the weekend in order to come into the Liverpool game at Anfield at full strength. And they were able to win under the back of Jurgen Klopp heavily rotated the team. And the rotated team looked like they hadn't played together before because guess what? They hadn't. Even though we have a massive injury crisis right now, Jurgen Klopp needs to show a little bit of convention in his team selection and just say, hey, we are still at the top of the Premier League right now. And we are also competing in in what has become a pretty tight Champions League group and one that really shouldn't be competitive at all. Liverpool should be far and away on 12 points right now and qualified for the knockout rounds. So I think this fixture congestion stuff, while Jurgen Klopp definitely has a point, and we'll get onto the meat of that confrontation between him and Des Kelly, I just think there needs to be a little bit more of a championship mentality being shown by Liverpool right now. And that was one that they really didn't display this week. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, it's my first thought upon watching the the interview or the, the post-match interview is, I think it's tricky doing these interviews um, both as a coach and as a broadcaster immediately after the game. I think a lot of the time you need a little bit, you need more than about five minutes after the whistle to gather your emotions and thoughts. One of the things that makes coaches come off quite poorly is just a lack of poise um, that comes from being, you know, invested in your team's performance. I think we've seen it happen with Jose Mourinho and Arsene Wenger and even Alex Ferguson, um, because it's really tough to be expected to, Alex Ferguson all the time. Of course. It should be said. Of course. But it, it, it's, I think it's really hard to be expected to, you know, be eloquent and well-spoken and have developed thoughts when you're basically five minutes away from failing or succeeding at your job. Um, and I admittedly, I think some managers are better at it than others. Um, but Klopp is clearly very well-spoken. He's clearly, you know, into the philosophy of soccer as it were. Um, and he's clearly frustrated. And why shouldn't he be? I mean, there's no reason his side should be put at a disadvantage when it comes down to, you know, the amount of recovery time they were able to have or not have um, just because the broadcasters would prefer to show them than show a relegation battle between, between Sheffield and West Brom. Uh, they, they could have played, you know, a solid six or seven hours later, really with no difference. And surely, you know, Liverpool versus Brighton isn't that much of a better marquee matchup um, than in some of the other games that were going on. Um, that afternoon or even today with Manchester United. So I understand him feeling aggrieved. I also just think, again, I've been advocating for this since the start of COVID. The FA needs to step up and take care of its players and its teams. And maybe as a byproduct of the fact that there isn't the same sort of players union as there is in American sports. Because if this were happening in the NBA, the players would just strike and there wouldn't be a product to show on TV. Or, you know, even in the NFL, which is a notoriously, you know, owner-friendly league, um, the players were the ones who pushed back against adding, you know, extra games uh, and sort of in the interest of player safety. Uh, but with more big-name players going down today, like Raul Jimenez, who we'll talk about later, um, it seems like a matter of time before the FA needs to actually just step up and take these very sensible 
very small and very sensible actions to protect players. Soccer is kind of structured such that players, I feel like, don't feel a lot of, you know, collective allegiance to each other. I think it's just you, you'd never there'd never be like a player strike in the Premier League. I don't believe unless unless perhaps they like really messed up COVID safety or whatever at the beginning of all this, or if they weren't getting paid, or or if they weren't getting paid. But but the point is, but they're not paid through a central organization, right? Right. right? So I think unfortunately they're just it's hard to put pressure on whatever sort of mysterious, whoever this mysterious broadcaster is, whatever interest they have. And so I think Klopp, I don't think he enjoys like being confrontational with reporters. I think he enjoys having like a good rapport. He's kind of seeing that there's no other way for him to get through other than to kind of go on the record in front of, you know, the British and international public and be like, this isn't okay. Because otherwise, there is really no forum for for pushing these changes. Well, right. And the defensiveness of the British media is going to immediately make it about, you know, Jurgen Klopp takes on Des Kelly in an interview and not, you know, Jurgen Klopp advocates for player welfare, which is really at the at the core of what he's trying to discuss. And it even was a few weeks ago when the first time he brought this issue up, it was in regards to Manchester United having to play on the Wednesday and then having to rock up to Goodison Park to play Everton in the 12.30 p.m., 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time game slot. So I think you can tell that, you know, Klopp isn't just advocating for Liverpool. And even if he was advocating just for Liverpool, he's the Liverpool manager, and he's fully within his rights to do that. You know, Jurgen Klopp is someone who has a degree in sports science. He's incredibly knowledgeable on things like fitness. If Klopp is the only one advocating for, you know, a meeting of the minds between Premier League shareholders the FA and broadcasters, then that's not going to bode well for the rest of the season in terms of, you know, fielding full teams come March. I think there could be, you know, a lot more injuries piling up, especially as we hit the holiday fixture period in the Premier League. So props for Jurgen Klopp to, for, for standing up for player welfare. But I also think, you know, like Des Kelly was alluding to, it's not solely a broadcaster issue. It is going to come down to, all those bodies meeting around the round table and discussing what they can do to kind of salvage a product that looks like it's heading towards a really rough middle of the season period. Right. Well, that's what I mean. Like I think Klopp alone can't change this. Des Kelly isn't responsible for setting the schedule. It seems to me like this is a situation where the team ownerships, right? Like FSG, Liverpool, et cetera, et cetera, need to, yeah, as you said, meet around the round table with the FA and just be like, we need to sort this out. Um, and so I, I honestly imagine that this might be towards the end of, of Klopp's outbursts because at some point it, it does get a little tiresome, I think. Um, but hopefully as as this chapter of Klopp activism, Klopp, Klopp-tivism ends. Uh, <laughs> Klopp-tivism. Klopp-tivism. Uh, we'll see like, you know, the actual power holders in this system, uh, you know, rallying towards what is fundamentally the defense of their own interests, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that gets lost because I think we've soccer, especially English soccer, has become such a tribalistic thing. Like you either are for Liverpool or you're against Liverpool. You're either for Manchester United or you're against Manchester United. You're doing everything in defense of your club without actually asking you know, what is the healthiest thing for these players who've had no break since July? The tribalism of soccer has made it impossible 
for these really fundamental discussions to take place, Nathan? English soccer is notoriously tribalistic. I don't I don't think it's like some sort of newfound no, no, not uh, at all. But I think in the advent of social media, it's become, and, and you know, broadcast media becoming really reliant on vir- virality, it's become even more tribalistic, I, I feel. Yeah, I guess so. But at the same time, like, looking at, like, what, what Chris Wilder was saying and sort of, you know, clop, quote unquote, clapping back at him, it all just seems a bit stupid to me right now, just given what else is going on in the world. Like... And, and maybe it's just me being, you know, a little pessimistic um, and, and not being able to separate uh, soccer or the Premier League from uh, its role, I guess, as entertainment and sort of the the other struggles that Britain is having and that, you know, the rest of the world is having with COVID right now. But um, it just doesn't really ring. It doesn't really carry the same gravitas to me as like, <laughs> you know, um, Wenger versus Ferguson or, or Wenger versus Mourinho. Like these are like dumb self-explanatory phenomena that can easily enough be solved. If you yeah, like there should be it. five subs and and clearly because the championship is going to implement it in the next few weeks. Like clearly there's no reason to complain about it. Like Wilder's just trying to prove a point and like, he's clearly on the wrong side. Um, so it, it just seems a little dumb to me, like from all parties involved. Hmm. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think Klopp is dumb by trying to defend himself. No, no, no. I think if, 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 you know, Wilder like uses his name in an interview unprovoked, then I think Klopp is, you know, with, fully within his rights to clap back, as you said, against Chris Wilder, who, you know, has a point literally in this case, oh. you know, Sheffield United is sitting on one point in the Premier League. So I think they could probably use five substitutes to get themselves back into massive matches against West Bromwich Albion, but that's neither here nor there as I get a little flustered. But okay. lads, I think, you know, we've, we've kind of talked this talking point through thoroughly, in my opinion, <laughs> shall we move on to today's games, which I think had a lot more impact at the top of the Premier League table. Yes. But I, I think we should just briefly mention some of the other results. We don't need to discuss them, but just shout them out. City beating Burnley 5-0 for what seems like the 10th successive. It is the fourth straight time okay. <laughs> Burnley have be, er, Burnley have lost 5-0 at the Etihad. Okay, there we go. Uh, 10 was a little excessive, but but 4 seems thoroughly appropriate. Uh, Leeds beat Everton in a game of who cannot finish the most shots. And then West Brom beat Sheffield in... In a barn burner. In a, an absolute barn burner. Sheffield now in last place with one point after 10 games. They are on pace for four points this season. Not even. They're like between three and four. 3.8 yes. points. Yes. So it could end up being a pretty rough, <laughs> pretty rough season. We thought it was going to be a rough season for Fulham, but it turns out that Sheffield United might be the whipping boys of the Premier League this season and might, you know, go down in the history books for all the wrong reasons. So do you have the over or the under on three and a half points? I have the over <laughs> on three and a half points. <laughs> I think the, I have I have confidence that they'll be able to win one game this season. <laughs> no, but they could they, win one game think, and then lose the rest and still only Oh wait, that'd be on four points though. Shit. Yeah. Okay, never mind. It, it's totally possible that they set the record for fewest goals scored in a season two. I think also, I think that's, which that's also play. belongs to that Derby team. And for the record, I think it's a little bit hilarious um, looking at the sort of war of words between Klopp and Wilder after 
Liverpool got basically, you know, half of the price for Jota from selling a championship level forward who has yet to contribute anything meaningful um, in the form of Ryan Brewster. So kind of funny there as well. Caleb, do you want to take us to the bridge for today's marquee game between Spurs and Chelsea? Ended up being, you know, not as intense a game as maybe we had hoped. Yeah, I mean, I think we were expecting a high-scoring game, especially because, you know, Spurs were in excellent form, Chelsea are in excellent form, both unbeaten for several games. Chelsea have, or Spurs have the best defense, Chelsea have the best offense in the league, Pulisic was returning. I don't know, all the stars really seemed to be aligning um, in the build-up to this game. We did not see that at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it was really disappointing. I, I think we could have seen that if, if Tammy Abraham hadn't, I, I don't know, tried out some new dance moves instead of just scoring. Um, it, it was truly impressive, the, the sort of body positions he found himself in uh, trying to strike the ball. I don't know. I, I don't know how to fully digest this game following, you know, what we described as a Mourinho masterclass against an equally on paper talented, although in worse form, Manchester City last week. Although at the same time, we saw Frank Lampard make some odd choices by bringing off Timo Werner. In the end, the I guess the, the, the matchup between sort of master and student in Mourinho and Lampard ended up in, in a bit of a stalemate, which I think is unfortunate for, for the neutral, but good for Liverpool if there's one positive to take from this. Yeah, this game kind of sucked. Like, I, I don't want to mince, mince words here. Neither team really managed to have any clear opportunities. I guess Chelsea, Timo Werner did score, but he was offside by, you know, about half a shoulder length. Some questionable managerial decisions, I think, from, from both managers, like Jose Mourinho, seemingly content to sit out for a draw, and then bringing on Lucas Mora after already bringing on uh, Ben Davies, like five minutes previous. And... Uh, for Frank Lampard taking off, you know, your team's best finisher in Timo Werner while leaving on Tammy Abraham. So all in all, pretty lackluster affair, especially compared to the normal intensity of Spurs Chelsea at the bridge. Um, obviously, it's been a famous fixture uh, in the last, you know, eight years or so. Uh, the stalemate proves that neither of these teams are perhaps elite as of yet. I disagree. I think this was just an example, a classic example of two teams really canceling each other out. I don't think this means that they're any worse following this game. I certainly think Spurs are looking a little bit more exhausted as the season continues to roll on. They didn't really have that lethal touch that they displayed against Man City in this game. I think Eric Dyer had a really good game once again. And just to talk about Tammy Abraham, I think he really did a nice job shuttling Tammy Abraham out of dangerous positions so that he had to look a little foolish and trying to convert some of his opportunities. I also think, you know, the fullbacks for Chelsea were probably the stars of the show. Once again, Reese James and Ben Chilwell are probably the best duo going right now, considering Trent Alexander-Arnold is stuck on the sidelines with an injury. I think if both teams can, you know, get some space in between fixtures, like Nathan said at the top of the episode, there has been a, a lot of congestion coming into you you know this month of soccer so i think maybe the return fixture at the tottenham hotspur stadium with both teams in full flow hopefully will result in a better game but i think certainly a better point 
for Jose Mourinho than it is for Frank Lampard. Well, we're going to go to the early game on Sunday, which was Manchester United and Edinson Cavani using the jaws of life to pull three points out of St. Mary's. I bet there was, was some sort of biblical reference that I could have made in terms of them getting three points away at a ground literally called St. Mary's, but I think I totally botched that. Oh, well. Unfortunately for Southampton, their really good start to the season and their run of good form has come to an end following the free transfer that I think a lot of people were questioning from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Edinson Cavani scoring two key goals to give United the three points. Caleb Bruno Fernandes once again pulling the strings in midfield. He had a goal and an assist. Without Bruno, United could be in real trouble this season. So I think they're lucky that they have a player as quality as the Portuguese. This is, in a weird sense, I think a bad result for Manchester United. Kind of in the mode that we've talked about a lot with Solskjaer. With the fact that he never quite has a run of form bad enough to warrant him being sacked. Because he always gets like a win when he needs it. But unfortunately, that also never forces the club to sort of face the, the fact that he's not a great manager and that the teams he's putting out just are not working very well. I don't know what about this 4-3-1-2 inspires him so much. It does, and I, I don't think it really works. Like, it really was the Fernandes and Cavani show at the end of the game in a game they deserve to lose to a Southampton team that, while it is in good form, is still not that impressive on paper. They're missing Danny Ings. They're playing an you know, aged Theo Walcott up top. Shea Adams is not especially productive. And at the end of the day, it was really just Ward-Prowse in sort of dead ball situations that caused danger. Cavani's probably going to start the next game. I mean, surely he has to. But I still think that if they continue to stick with this formation that provides zero width at all and completely exposes Juan Bissaka and Tellez, who isn't a good defender then they're going to continue to struggle. And it's not particularly impressive to have to keep having comeback wins against teams that Manchester United should beat. Yeah, again, it's not as if this team was like tactically very well set up. Like this 4-4-2 diamond is not working whatsoever. Um, and it's pretty clear that this is reactionary, maybe from not getting a, a, a an elite winger like Jaden Sancho this past summer, and for instead signing a 10th center midfielder in Donny van de Beek. But clearly it didn't work. Um, and again, for what seems like the upteenth time in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reign, uh, they walk away with maybe an undeserved, actually, certainly an undeserved three points. Um, even though Cavani's last goal to win it was a very, very nice header. Again, it just seems like United keep getting away with it over and over and over again, whether it's for whether it's scoring an extra time or getting penalties awarded after the final whistle is blown, uh, they certainly seem to have had all of the luck, uh, whereas other teams like Liverpool have had comparatively less of it. And in the late game today, it was another home defeat for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal. Not looking great, Nathan, <laughs> for Arsenal. In fact, Bleacher Report posted a photoshopped image of Mikel Arteta's face on Unai Emery's body, and Arteta <laughs> had like Arteta had like the Emery slicked back hair with all the hair gel in it. And it is Arsenal's worst start to your Premier League season through ten matches. You turned off this game halfway through. That is true, and it's. 
I should say that Wolves Wolves won out two to one at the Emirates. Yeah, it's very very rare that I like completely turn my back on Arsenal. Like I used to watch. I mean, I pretty much do watch every game religiously. This was the first game that I can remember turning off. I guess since one of the latter games in the Emery era, the way the the way Arteta set up our team um, from the start of Project Restart through. I guess the first couple of matches of this year was being defensively compact and sort of hoping to win games on the counter. And while it wasn't particularly aesthetically pleasing, it got results. Like we had some pretty, some pretty huge wins. And even the win against United at Old Trafford um, is an example of success without style. But over the last couple of weeks, it's just been so poor. And I really think that while Arteta, I don't think has been doing a great job the players who we have are many of the players who we have are clearly just not up to the standard of a bit of a top six or a top seven side. Um, Xhaka and Ceballos have both been dreadful. Uh, Willian again, uh, despite having a nice assist, just doesn't seem like he's physically up for it. You know, there are some good players that we have in our team. Hector Bellerin looked lively again. Saka is someone with a ton of potential. I don't know how much blame we can place on on Arteta for this when the side that he has been dealing with um, is just playing so poorly. And admittedly, this is a team without Thomas Partey, the lack of service to Aubameyang, the issues go on and on and on. Um, And I'm ready to sort of tone it down. And I think I, I thought Arsenal would be ready to challenge for top four. Right now, it seems like somewhere between 12th and 8th is right where this team should be. Um, and so I'm not sure what can be done to make this team better aside from investment in a creative midfielder. I sort of just feel pity right now, which is not something that I'm used to feeling about our about my team. Caleb, they have a North London derby next week against a Tottenham team that we know is incredibly ruthless. How worried should we be about Arsenal right now? I think quite worried. I mean, I think it's it's almost a given that they will lose. I, I think the only thing that might save them is the fact that Spurs don't try to dominate possession. Arsenal won't just be completely clawing at the game. But I think until they find out what to do about their center midfield in the absence of Partey, I think that we're going to probably see Elneny next weekend. Like un- Until they figure out the middle of the park, which between Xhaka, Chabayos, and Willock offers almost no defensive protection, not a lot of mobility, um, and just several players in bad form. Like I don't fully blame Chabayos for being bad. I don't think he's a true center midfielder like I just don't think playing him in a double pivot is where you get the best out of him but obviously Arsenal just have to deal with the circumstances that they've been dealt um so yeah I don't know I I think they should be worried I I am I'm I'm interested how this game is the game that seems to have finally like broken through to you Nathan like I think Nick and I have both safely been on like this Arsenal team is probably relatively mid-table for a long time and you've I think you started off this year being like, oh, easy top six. Spurs, they're trash. Uh, so I, I think it says a lot that you're kind of coming around to the fact that barring like a drastic change, this team's going to finish eighth to 12th. And I don't think, as you said, that's because Arteta's a bad manager. I just think that they lack the pieces right now and they lack a system. And I think Arteta is still trying to find a system for the players that he has and he just hasn't really found one that really enhances the qualities of of his available sort of playing personnel yeah and not to dwell on arsenal too much i think there's an interesting uh 
incident to discuss from this game. Well, right. I was going to segue into that in that not only was it a bad loss on the score sheet for Arsenal, but certainly a questionable moral result in terms of the way that we're going to look at this game from an injury perspective. There was a clash in the sixth minute from a corner between Raul Jimenez and David Luiz. Raul Jimenez was transported to the hospital after undergoing concussion protocol and looking like he was clean out on the field. Arsenal club, club doctors were able to run onto the field and tend to David Luiz, and for whatever reason, he was allowed to continue playing after looking like he too had suffered a concussion. I think frequently, guys, we're seeing season in, season out, that there are one to two major concussion protocol incidents in the Premier League and in world soccer as a whole. And it just seems to me that like the impact, the true impact of head injuries have not really landed at the foot of the Premier League doorstep. And once again, it's an instance where head injuries and concussion protocol is not really taken seriously. I, I think it's especially damning to just because there, there are new studies coming out um, talking about the prevalence of early onset dementia and CTE in soccer players that are prompting some academies like Ajax and PSV to move away from training with headers um, until the age of 14, I believe, and using a sort of soft foam ball until the age of 18. I think sometimes the discourse, at least in my mind, gets jumbled because unlike a sport like American football, the a fundamental part of the soccer game is not you know, clashing heads with people. But it certainly is something that happens far too often. And, you know, the practice of heading balls is obviously going to, you know, cause serious effects that are just now being realized. Because, again, as we are seeing in other aspects of the game, soccer is so often reactive and very, very rarely proactive. A clear way that could be that that the FA and that, you know, FIFA could improve the safety of players and the general you know, game as a whole is just to allow for for free concussion substitutes because clearly Louise wasn't fit to play, but Arteta clearly didn't want to risk, you know, using one of his two one of his three subs so early, um, which is obviously not a defense, but more of a statement of the way things are. Um, and so, an easy idea is just to let players who are concussed get substituted off for the health and safety of the game. FIFA is okay with five subs during a time of pandemic, then enabling coaches not to be penalized for looking out for their players should also be acceptable under the laws. Well, yeah, I think that's the other horrible thing is that Arsenal realized at halftime that Luis wasn't fit to continue the game. So that's when they took him off. And of course, David Luiz is going to say, I'm able to continue. Because if you're a player competing at the highest level, you're going to want to stay in the game and just try and tough it out. But we're in an era of sports science where we know that toughing it out often leads to long-lasting impacts down the line, Caleb. I, I, I just watched replay. Like it's pretty, it was a bad hit. Like It was a bad enough hit that Jimenez had to go to the hospital. And last I checked, Newton's third law is a thing. So surely it, it hit Louise at least as hard. So I, yeah, I agree with Nathan that we need to sort of reduce the any bad incentives there are towards leaving injured players uh, on the field. Um, and I think, as you said, it reflects poorly on Arteta's character at the end of the day, and it reflects poorly on Arsenal's medical staff, who certainly are not not the most fondly. You know, I'm not sure how people generally feel about the medical staff at their clubs, but I think Arsenal are kind of notorious, at least for their medical issues uh, and lengthy mm -hmm. you know 
injury sideline. So I can't imagine the Arsenal faithful have a lot of trust. I mean, they most, the head trainer went to Liverpool actually this last year. Well, that's worked oh, out great for him wow. so far. That um, checks out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the thing is, is that club doctors shouldn't be the ones making the decision about whether or not their own team player can go off. Their own team's player can go off. I think there needs to be a neutral umbrella concussion protocol that is implemented by the Premier League that takes it out of the hands of, in this case, Arsenal. Right. Well, there should be like a ref doctor. I don't know yes. what that means. Like there just should be like a, a neutral third doctor. party. A neutral, there we go. Who just goes along with the Arsenal medical staff and runs the concussion protocol and then makes the decision, right? Because I think, you, once again, like there is like a pressure on like the Arsenal physios to not unduly take off, you know, right. one of their key players. And I understand that pressure. Like we saw in All or Nothing when Jose Mourinho, his main antagonist for one episode was the team physios. And like trying to get players like Hunman San available to play. So there is that, as Caleb was saying, there is that sort of push and pull between management and, you know, physios to let the players continue playing or not. It's not as if this is like a unique phenomena to them. Remember when Hugo Lloris was knocked out by uh Lukaku. By, by Lukaku? Like I, like like this is or 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 in the World Cup when Amrabat was knocked out and mm. the Moroccan team doctors slapped him on the head, poured some water, and was like, "You're good to go." Like again, this is this extends far beyond the events that we've seen today, but right. it's time to sort of. Move well, I think it the point guys. is that like, we see it we see it once <laughs> or twice every year. Right. Well, Caleb, let's move on to La Liga while we still have some time left. It was a, I think, in the wake of Maradona's passing, a really feel-good 4-0 win for FC Barcelona capped off with that Newell's Old Boys jersey celebration from Messi. Antoine Griezmann is starting to round into some form for Barcelona. I'm still still reeling, reeling from his uh, volley today. Yeah, Griezmann looked a player. Griezmann, this this was honestly... His best game in a Barcelona jersey. Absolutely his best game. And it's also the first time where we've seen Martin Braithwaite leading the line and allowing Messi and Griezmann to both play while each being able sort of to be more like ball carriers and not having to lead the line. And so I think that was big. I don't know. I I was just very, very happy with this result, especially considering that we had to play Dest at right back and Mingueza. Um, getting his La Liga debut today. Worrying things being that Clement Langley got injured, so now we actually have no fit first-team center backs, although it seems like his injury is only going to be for a few games. But I think this was this was a very steadying win for a team that has perf- has fewer had fewer points in La Liga than they did in the Champions League, despite playing four or five more games in La Liga. Osasuna are not the teams we need to beat, you know, to prove that we're back, so to speak. But I think having two 4-0 wins in a row in one week with Griezmann having two goals, with Braithwaite having three goals in total, I, 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 I hate to draw too much because I feel like, and I've, I've definitely been at fault of this, like drawing a trend line based off of like the singular prior game and being like, oh, you know, now we're going to win 4-0 every game when like clearly we need a big sample size. But this game felt more complete than even some of our early big wins in La Liga at the beginning of the season. Yeah, it just makes you wonder how good this Barcelona team could be if they had an elite center forward 
um, one Luis Suarez uh, comes to mind. Right, right. But um, it definitely, I mean, definitely a positive sign. Um, and of course, fortunately for Barcelona, the remaining Champions League games, or at least this week's Champions League game, can be accompanied by some some heavy rotation uh, against Dynamo Kiev and potentially having qualified at that point, you also will be able to rest players against Juve. I think what is great for Barcelona is the fact that Real Madrid, who also look like they have an increasingly thin-looking squad, continue to shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> in La Liga. Uh, this time, Thibaut Courtois with a horrendous pass into Jose Lu and Alaves. Went out 2-1. to one against Real Madrid and Zidane, you know, after some pretty decent looking performances with in recent months, once again, faces a total reshuffling of his team. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was just a bad result for Madrid. I, I don't think they can, they, they argued that there was a foul, I think on Marcelo at the end of the first half, that should have been a penalty, but like on the whole, they did not deserve to win this game at all. It was another game where Marcelo started and they lost. And Hazard went down injured, which means, once again, I think since 2017 or 2018, I saw some stat, he's had like 15 injuries that have kept him out for over a year. He's never played more than four games in a row for Real Madrid. And unfortunately, when you're missing Benzema and Eden Hazard, frankly, an attacking line of Marco Asensio, Mariano, and Rodrigo Vinicius doesn't scream either like Champions League winner or even like La Liga title contender, in all honesty. The midfield looked incredibly static. Kreis had way too much defensive responsibility trying to cover him for Marcelo. They looked a little better when Odegaard and Isco came on. Alaves' second goal was due to just a terrible miscue from Courtois. But those are just honestly symptoms of a kind of like greater issue with this Real Madrid team. Barcelona, with a game in hand compared to Real Madrid, have outscored them and conceded fewer goals in what is, you know, probably Barcelona's worst start to a season in, what, 15 years at least. We know the Zidane magic has worn off a little bit, but it is kind of baffling how there isn't really as much pressure on his job as perhaps there should be. Um, you know, we saw him, we saw Madrid lose to Shakhtar and that sparked some questions and then draw with Mönchengladbach and then narrowly beat Inter a few weeks ago. Um, so it seems to me like Real Madrid are, you know, two Champions League matches away from potentially sinking into the Europa League if things don't go their way. Um, and I think that would really spark a conversation, even though I do think they'll end up finishing second in their group. Uh, things are not all rosy in the capital. Shall we move on to the Bundesliga just briefly and talk about Borussia Dortmund's losing 2-1 at home to a team that had not won in 13 games in Köln. Nathan, this Borussia Dortmund team has a bunch of fun pieces, but if they want to contend, they can't be losing games like this at home. It's it's just very Dortmund of them, right? Like this is going this is just this <laughs> Exactly, is... exactly. No, but it is though. I mean, going going back for the last couple of years, Dortmund are a team that consistently shoots themselves in the foot as well, generally with poor defensive errors. And they did that again. Uh like there's no reason that a Köln team that, you know, was in the relegation zone should be <laughs> should be rolling up and and beating a team that's starting you know, two of the world's best wonder kids and elite players like Marco Royce. 
so pretty shocking again. Uh, their defensive frailties, like starting Felix Poshlock, who is somehow past it, despite the fact that you know he's only twenty two years old. It just doesn't doesn't bode <laughs> very well. It. It's so well, dormant to well, be like past it at twenty two years old. No, but you <laughs> remember. But remember, <laughs> that's like they're bringing on sixteen year olds like Mukoko, but <laughs> because they're twenty two year old Felix Paslock. I mean, like... keep in mind, keep in mind, he made his he made his debut for Dortmund in twenty fourteen. No, so like I at this point. <laughs> No, like, I know what you're saying. I think it's just it's just funny, like that Bruce and Dortmund are totally yeah. reliant on these, you know, like eighteen to twenty two year olds. They're not even twenty two, I guess. Twenty two is is reaching, like um, you know, like seventeen to twenty year olds to try and salvage points for them. And I think, you know, what you see from actual title winning teams is that you need, you know, the energetic young talent, but you also need your experienced talent to show up. And I think even in the Bayern Munich game players like Marco Royce weren't really performing to the levels that we know we can that we know they can perform to and i just think that uh, Jaden Sancho and Erling Haaland you know can't be performing out of this world miracles every week for them to contend like they're at the end of the day a pair of 20 year olds very talented 20 year olds with immense potential but 20 year olds nonetheless it's it's not only you know like Holland and Sancho not always getting it done every game, right? Like it's it's all well and good for Holland to score four goals in one game, but like they just needed, you know, a goal in this game really. I think more so I'm concerned about the fact that Bront and Hazard have not been particularly effective. I'm just not sure whether like Jaden Sancho, for instance, can really go for like 17 goals and 17 assists in the Bundesliga again, because that's like just like an insane return like I, I think he's probably closer to maybe like 10 and 10 or, or 12 and 10 like it seems unlikely to really get close to 2020 again and I think yeah I don't know it, it's kind of it's a consistent problem with Dortmund it's like you got to just beat these teams right like it's not as hard as they make it out to be um, and sometimes I feel like Dortmund just they hit these crazy highs but they just don't really put together like consistent 2-0 wins which is you know, at the end of the day, what what will bring you a Bundesliga title? All right, lads, I think that's going to bring us to the end of our episode today. Certainly a lot of hot button issues on the table for us to discuss, but we will see how the season progresses from here. Hopefully no more injuries, no more controversial things for us to talk about. And we can actually, you know, spend an entire episode discussing soccer for once, which it seems like we have not been able to do for a long time. But certainly, this is going to be a season to remember as stories continue to trickle out each and every week. Rest in peace to Diego Armando Maradona. Oh, I've been Nick Vinden. Kayla Brits. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.